0: As we come now to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 1. That's in the New Testament, the book of Philippians in chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Great God, we ask for your help now. Open our eyes by your Spirit to see things that are true. Would you set our hearts and minds and will upon your word and help us to desire these things as a source of truth because it comes from you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read here from Philippians in chapter 1. Starting in verse 12, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's the same section we read last week, uh, but I want to focus us on the second half of this, but still read the entirety of this section. So, Philippians chapter one we'll begin in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel And I will rejoice. This is God's word. Now, we've just heard Paul say, and just a brief summary of what we talked about last week, that what had happened to him, and by this he's referencing at least in large part his imprisonment, what had happened to him had really served to advance the gospel. And this had two effects. Uh, one was an external effect that the, that the praetorian guard, the soldiers, and some others had come to know about Christ. And even it seems some had come to know him personally. So that was the external effect outside of the Christian community. But there was also an internal effect that some, many of the Christian brothers uh, came to boldly speak of Jesus without fear. So now in this second half of the section we've just read, uh, he elaborates on those who are speaking about Jesus. And he puts those people who are speaking about Jesus into two groups. Now, we don't know if both of those groups are real Christians or not, uh, but they are at least people from within the Christian community. And we could call the two groups just broadly... Uh, the, the good group and the bad group The ones who are speaking out of goodwill and those who are speaking out of envy and rivalry uh, Several weeks ago uh, There was a group of us who gathered to talk about uh, the book of Philippians and sort of preview it here And several had mentioned that Paul's response to this, especially to the bad group Is Unexpected interesting. It seems odd in some way, and and some people asked a very good question, why is Paul so soft on the bad ones? Uh, We know that Paul's not always quite so tender and soft. We know that uh, sometimes he brings down the hammer in his writings. Um, When he talks to a group of people in Galatians, uh, ones who taught that you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, uh, as was the Jewish custom. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, those who are teaching that you ought to be circumcised, how about they just go a little further up and snip everything off? Can I say that from the pulpit I guess Paul did in the Bible? Ooh, that's a strong uh, statement there. And, and earlier in Galatians, um, let's see, verse, uh, chapter 1 in verse 8, he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be a curse. So we know that Paul's not shy about speaking harshly about things, to, he talks about and to some wishing some would be emasculated, that's very intense, and some would be uh, cursed, why then doesn't he speak with similar intensity in this situation in Philippians? I think the key to that, the answer to that, is in verse 18. My Bible reads this way. What then, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So there's the contrast right there of the two groups. Some are in pretense and some are in truth. Now, he doesn't say whether in falsehood or truth. He doesn't say whether in lies or in truth. I think a a, a good translation, the NIV puts it, whether by false motives or true. I think that's a good translation of Paul's intent here. In both groups, the good and the bad, if we call them that, Christ, the content of Christ, is being truly preached. So both groups are are saying true things about Jesus, that he's the son of God. That he's one God, fully God, with the Father. And that he's also truly man. So that he died, actually died. And that his death, as a perfect sacrifice, took upon our sin. And then he was raised from the dead in glory. And that he brings salvation for all who believe and trust upon him. And he then brings us wholly before God. It seems that both groups are saying those things, saying true things about Jesus. All of that is true. So the content of what both groups are saying is the same. What's different is their motive, their reason for saying what they're saying. So he says in there, in the contrast, one is speaking from goodwill and out of love, and the other is speaking from envy and rivalry and out of selfish ambition. The source of both is vastly different. Now, if the content of what a person is teaching in the scripture is wrong, Paul has some really strong bite about that. In fact, even in Philippians, where it is a chapter verse 2 he calls some people the dogs, the evildoers those who mutilate the flesh those are people who are teaching wrong things and so Paul is right to be sharp about that because he and we are not mushy when it comes to truth and fiction, we want to know what's true but here It seems as if the content is correct It's just the motive that's wrong That some are speaking in a way That was hurtful to Paul somehow And and his response at the end In verse 18 What then It, It almost feels like a shrug What then At least Christ has preached And I'm glad Now before we talk about that, we have to address another side issue. Does this mean that motives don't matter? That the, that the end justifies the means? As long as you get the right outcome, it'll be okay. No, is the short answer to that. I hope that feels intuitive to you, but uh, let me show that that's the case from the scripture. Uh, Jesus, a, a clearer example, I think, in, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, helps us on this. Matthew chapter 6. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, he says this, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So you can see in this that there's a right action happening, that some are giving to the needy, but it's the wrong reason for doing that. They're giving in order to be seen or praised by others rather than out of love for their neighbor. And so Jesus calls them (laughs) hypocrites, a word that's often uh, pinned on Christians these days. A hypocrite then is an actor literally, on a stage, a person who's playing a part. Now, Jesus likes giving to the needy. He calls us to give to the needy. This is Christ-likeness, but he's just addressing warped motives for giving. So it's part of that inner desire to, when the offering plate passes by, you feel that sort of discomfort, whether you put something in or not, and maybe there's a sense of wanting to make sure that others know that you actually are giving, that they saw that you put something in the plate. Or if we we go and tutor inner city kids and then post up pictures all over Facebook and Instagram about it. Or, or if we tell, find ourselves wanting to tell the same stories over and over about that one time when I helped that poor family years ago. Now, it's not necessarily wrong, of course. We know, the Scripture says so, to, to give money in the offering or to tutor kids and even to put up pictures about it or, or to help the poor and even to mention it. But we know that if part of our reason for doing those things is to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or to look like the good Christian that we think we're supposed to be or to sound the trumpet of our own generosity, we will be rewarded and praised, but not by God. Because true righteousness, a kind of righteousness that comes through Jesus, comes from both the hand and the heart. It comes both from right action and right reason. So, in the context of Philippians, then, uh, we see a situation where there's a disconnect for some between the action and the motive for that action. The, The right action is they're preaching Christ truly. Faithfully, in some sense, but there's a wrong reason. He mentions several um, out of envy and rivalry, he says. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, that some are preaching Jesus out of envy and rivalry. It seems that some people are actually. Jealous of Paul He gives us a little bit of insight later When he describes in verse 17 uh, These are preaching Christ Out of my Bible says Selfish ambition That phrase Selfish ambition That same Greek word is used by Aristotle uh, In his writings on Politics And it's a reference to, To sort of jockeying For political power that there would, uh, there would be some sense of gain of power by, by adding popular opinion. And so in the Philippian context here, uh, Paul's saying that some have basically politicized preaching, that they're treating ministry to other people as a campaign, sort of, to win public favor. And so you can imagine the versions of political attack ads that would have come out Little backhanded compliments toward Paul When these preachers were talking to people They might say things like, you know Paul writes really powerful letters Boy, have you seen him in person? You know, he's kind of short and squinty-eyed Or, or, you know, that Paul He really loves to preach about Jesus But he's so long-winded you know, you know, one time he talked so long that someone fell asleep and fell out of the window and died. And that Paul, you know, boy, he's an apostle of Christ. But you know he's in prison, right? You can feel the envy there. And jealousy turns us into really nasty monsters. I think Shakespeare was right, one of my favorite lines. He says, jealousy is the greed-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Jealousy is eating them alive. And we might imagine that if Paul was talking directly to these people, the ones who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, the ones who were politicizing preachers, if he were speaking to them directly, we might hear him say different things we might hear much more sharply call out their sin and call them to repentance in Jesus. Paul might say, guys, what are you doing? I mean, you're teaching with your mouths true things, but your hearts are miles away from Jesus. Don't you know that Jesus, the one whom you claim to know, was not after selfish ambition, but looked to the interests of others? Don't you know that Jesus did not exalt himself, but emptied and humbled himself? Don't you know that Jesus, even though he's the king of glory, did not grasp after that glory, but took the form of a servant? You preachers say you honor God, but you are hypocrites. Those are the things we might hear if he were talking to them. But he's not talking to them. In this context, Paul is talking about them to the Philippians. And I think it's helpful for us to see the way that Paul deals with that and the way that he's responding to this situation. Because I know if it were me, it would be easy to go on and on and on about how selfish and wrong those people are. And in the process of going on about it, to be caught up in bitterness and anger and divisiveness to respond to their sin with my sin. Perhaps Paul was tempted to do that, uh, but by the grace of God, he doesn't. Instead, what he does here is just mention these guys for a moment because it's happening, and then he just moves on to a different response. In his different response, he says at the end of verse 18 is joy. That's wild. This joy he talks about is not a fake smile. That would just be more hypocrisy. This joy is not rose-colored glasses that are always chipper and skipping through flowers. Although, if you want to skip through flowers, go ahead. It's not a bad thing. Uh, But this is real gladness And even says at the end of 18 And you know I'm going to keep on being glad Now the question for me then That I really want to know Is how can Paul do that I mean he's imprisoned Currently under house arrest And in some ways worse He's being personally attacked by these people Who are envious of him how can Paul be joyful in the midst of all of this? The answer, the short answer, is the grace of Jesus. That's always the answer to these things. We know that the joy is, the, is a fruit, a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience. Remember, joy is one of these. And so that fruit, he said, comes only through the righteousness of Jesus. So we know that Paul is an apostle, but he's also just a man. That's the reason why he's regularly praying and seeking for God's help first and often in these things. So the short answer is he's joyful, of course, by the grace of God, but but some might be going, all right, Nathan, can you be a little more specific? How do we get after this joy? And I think there's a few things in here that might be a little more helpful to us in addition to this, that if we want the fruit of joy, we first have to start by looking at the soil in which it might grow. We talked about a good bit of this a couple of years ago, I can't believe it's been that long, um, back when I was preaching through the book of Habakkuk, if I can even find it, one of those small Old Testament prophets, you remember the context, if you don't, it's okay, let me remind you what's going on uh, in Habakkuk's context, so the nation of Israel has been exiled, leaving only just the nation of Judah in the time period of Habakkuk. And Judah then was continuing to digress as well, that they were falling into violence, contention, strife. They were pulling each other apart. And the prophet Habakkuk was looking at his own people, God's people, and going, Lord, why don't you do something about this? He's wrestling here with the problem of evil. Why is this happening, and what are you doing? And the Lord says, oh, I'll do, I'm doing something. In fact, I'll bring the Babylonians, some call them the Chaldeans, I'm bringing these Babylonians to come in and punish the nation of Judah, and they'll be taken into exile. And so Habakkuk goes, oh, good. That is worse than we started. What's left is just then a pile of rubble, and as he continues to wrestle with this, by chapter 3, he ends up singing a song so that the book of Habakkuk ends like this. This is Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 17. He says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers, and he makes me tread on my high places. Hmm. What's going on here? I think there's a similarity between Habakkuk and Paul and really uh, many believers throughout Scripture, even, even to now, we can see a pattern, several patterns in the way they're relating to God in joy. So I think there's at least three helpful things for us. These won't be full sermons. Three things, if you're a note taker, here's your your time. Uh, Three things that are helpful for us about Christian joy. The first is that Christian joy is simultaneous. Meaning that there is an experience of joy often at the same time as the occurrence of hard things, that the hard things and joy are not mutually exclusive but sometimes happen concurrently. In other words, joy does not mean that everything is going right or that everything was going as I wish it would. Joy and hardship often sit on the same couch. So, even if trees are bare of olives and figs, the Christian can say, I will still be glad because God is my salvation. Or even if the fields and the stalls and the bank accounts are empty, I will still be glad because the Lord is my strength. Even if I'm imprisoned unjustly, I will still be glad because God is advancing the gospel of Jesus. And even if people don't like me and say really hurtful or harmful things about me, I will still be glad because Christ is being proclaimed. This means for us that when we face difficulties, We don't need to be surprised about that or even discouraged. Even in difficulties, the joy of the Lord will still be our strength, not only after the difficulty, but during it. So there's the first thing, Christian joy is simultaneous. Here's the second, Christian joy is selective. You'll notice that for neither Habakkuk nor Paul uh, do they say that they are glad about all things. They say that they are glad in all things, meaning in the midst of all things. Uh, Paul said uh, that these people have false motives for preaching. That is what it is, you know. But Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I'm not glad that they have false motives. I am glad that Christ is proclaimed. Proclaimed He's selective about what he is joyful About That doesn't mean that we ignore Everything else that's unpleasant or bad But it does mean that we zoom in on the things Of God that are really worth Celebrating Paul at the end of the Book of Philippians toward the end After he says the famous line rejoice in the Lord Always again I'll say rejoice In chapter 4 he says these words Soon after verse 8 Finally brothers Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's anything, any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, we want to be selective about what we choose to dwell upon. And we want to draw near with our minds To the things of God And as we do that regularly The product is often Joy That we want to come to value The ambitions of Jesus More than any other ambition Now, of course it takes Wisdom and effort to cultivate that And again, that only comes by the grace and help of Jesus. But in part, in order to do this, we must choose to spend time with God. Anyone who's ever been in a long-term relationship knows this, but that's often difficult to maintain the strength of relationship. It takes a good bit of focus or intentionality on the relationship or else you just kind of lose touch. We want, then, to choose to spend time with the Lord. Because if the only time that we have contact with Jesus is here for one hour of the week, we will begin to forget him, to lose track of the wonder of God, of the love of God, of the mercy of God, of the grace of God, to forget about that. And we begin, slowly, then, to not Choose him, and then at the end, we wonder why our joy has withered. By God's grace, we want to cultivate relationship with Jesus by conversation, hearing what he has said in his word, and talking to him in prayer. So, that's the second thing that will help the soil of joy is, is that Christian joy is selective. Third, finally, Christian joy is stable. Christian joy is stable. Now, this is not to say that there's not seasons of struggle or doubt or that a real Christian doesn't wrestle with joy on some level. You know, depression and things like it are very real. But it does comment about the source of our joy. Our source of joy is stable. You know, it's, we often place our joy in, in areas of low tide. And then when the tide rises, it washes away everything we've put there. Sometimes we set our joy in circumstances, in whether or not we have a job or a house or friends or freedom. Or or we'll set our joy in the opinions of others whether or not they approve of us or praise us or say good things about us. We set our joy in our status, whether I'm a good worker, a good mother, a good thinker, a good singer, a good leader. We set our joy in these areas, and then it's no wonder that every time the news comes on, we feel threatened by it. Because things outside can unsettle the places of our joy. The only ground that is stable enough to sustain joy is the ground of God himself. That Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. That's a place where joy can really grow and continue to thrive. If we set our hearts and our our eyes, our, our ears, our minds, everything on the ways of man, we will often find ourselves discouraged and disappointed, angry, frustrated. Because with man, too often we find envy and rivalries. Even, I suppose, within the church, within our own hearts. But if by the grace of God we are setting our hearts, eyes, ears, minds, everything on the ways of God, or seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, we'll often find that the experience of joy is thrown in and that that joy is really stable. So even in the face of prison or empty trees and fields, in the face of rivalries and envy, those who are rooted in Christ by the grace of Christ can really say, you know what? What then? Whether false motives are true, Christ is preached. And I'm actually glad. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us Turn our hearts this direction, that we would really see you deeply, truly, and that as our eyes and minds are set upon you regularly, that we would grow in our joy in you, a joy that will really, really last in spite of whatever we face. Lord, help us in this, because we always need your help. You are a good God, and we do trust you and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.